Hello and welcome to the Quantum Wire, news and information from the frontiers of the quantum information science revolution. We're coming to you from the Joint Quantum Institute, a research partnership of the University of Maryland and National Institute of Standards and Technology. I'm Kurt Suplee. And I'm Steve Ralston. And today we're going to be talking about randomness the essential randomness of the values obtained when any quantum mechanical system is measured, and how that randomness might be put to work to solve some of the most urgent problems in information technology. So I guess a good place to start is, why do we need to concern ourselves with random numbers? Isn't life sort of random enough as it is? Yeah, life can be pretty random, and especially you want it to be random if you're at Las Vegas. You want to make sure that when you spin the roulette wheel, the chances of landing on any number are completely random. But the other place we care about it is for cryptography or secret codes. So if you remember, I'm sure you did this as a kid, you made this great discovery that I could take a message and I could do a substitution so that I create my secret message where the letter A, I make F, and B, I make G, and so forth and so on. And it would be unreadable by anybody unless you knew the frequency of the the letters, for example, in the English language. Exactly. So if you go and analyze the English language, what you'll find is the letter E is the most common letter of the alphabet, followed by T, if you're interested. And so E shows up about 12% of the time. If it were completely random, it would only show up 1 26th of the time. So with this, if, if you gave me your secret message, I could just look at it and figure out which letter occurred most commonly and decide that was an E. I'd probably be right. The next letter a T and so forth, and I could break the code. So though that may look random, it's not really random. So how would we go about generating real randomness to make this code uh, truly unbreakable? Well, so the key is to have my secret code be truly random. And the easiest way to see that that really works is to think about zeros and ones. So in reality, whenever we do anything on our computer, it eventually gets converted into bits, zeros and ones. And so if you have a message, and let's say your message is pretty simple. It's zero, 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 zero. I could add random zeros and ones to that message, and what would come out of that would look random. If your message was instead one, 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 it would still look random because my zeros, would have, when I added, would have got flipped the ones and vice versa. And then you would send me the sequence of those random zeros and ones, and I would use that. But to anyone who intercepted that, the message they would see would just look like an absolute string of random numbers. And how, how big do these numbers get in, in real life? If I wanted to, for example, uh, ensure the uh, integrity of a big bank transaction, how many digits are we talking about? Oh, you're going to need thousands of of bits um, to to do that and millions of bits as you go along. And the more transactions you have, the more random numbers you'd like. So in a sense, there's an insatiable demand for random numbers, believe it or not. (laughs) I do. Um, Now, all right, I can understand that about random numbers. Now, why do we need to involve quantum information science in the generation of random numbers? Well, classical physics is not random. So if you imagine I'm going to write a computer program that generates random numbers or I'm going to construct the Powerball lottery and have somebody pulling ping pong balls out of a bin, 
I want to know that that's truly random. And if I knew exactly where those ping pong balls were in the bin and how fast they were moving and how they were bouncing, I could use my classical physics to calculate their trajectories and figure out exactly which ping pong ball was going to be selected. Hmm. So even even um, flipping coins, then, if you knew what face it started with, the flip rate, the air pressure, the, uh, the uh, periodicity of the rotation, you could tell in advance, in theory, uh, whether it came up heads or tails. In fact, there was a recent paper I saw that examined flipping coins, and they found that, in fact, it wasn't very random for the average coin flipper. So where does quantum mechanics come in to generate this kind of genuine randomness? Well, quantum mechanics is this theory that has underlying it probability, and the description of the world with quantum mechanics is related to a description of probability. So at its heart, quantum mechanics really has that randomness built in, because all we can really say is what's the probability of an event happening. So if I'm, for example, I, uh, we want to measure uh the position of an electron uh, orbiting an atom, and I take the same atom at the same temperature in the same uh, excitation state, and I measure it 100 times, I will get 100 different random values, right? I can tell you what the probability of having it being on the left or the right is, but I can't tell you what the actual value is until I go and measure it. All right. Well, what procedure or what uh, quantum mechanical protocol do you employ to certify that these things are random? Well, this goes back to uh, some work done in the 60s by a physicist named John Bell, and he proved a very fundamental uh, concept, which is that we can, in fact, certify that things are quantum and they're not classical. And we won't go into the details, but basically there's something called Bell's inequalities. You do a series of measurements, and you construct a number. And if that number is two or less, classical physics can, in principle, describe it. And if it's greater than two, then it can only be quantum mechanical. So quite often we talk about violation of Bell's inequalities. So that means that we violated the rules of classical physics, and we guarantee that that's a quantum thing we're looking at. So actually, that's the only way that you could genuinely guarantee that something is quantum. That's right. That's the violating Bell's inequalities is the quantum stamp of approval. Okay, joining us now is Chris Monroe, one of our JQI fellows and a Maryland professor here, who's recently uh, published some work about random numbers and certifying them with quantum mechanics. So tell us, Chris, just a little bit about how did you come up with this experiment? In the well, first we place? didn't come up with it actually. We we had a uh, a system that was unique in the world, actually, <laughs> as esoteric as it is. A couple of European uh, theorists, computer quantum computer theorists, approached us with an idea that our machine could generate random numbers in a way that had not been done before. So, can you? Describe to us what that machine is. So in this in this setup, we we start by forming entanglement between two separated atoms, and the two individual atoms are entangled by each emitting a single photon, and we interfere those photons in a funny way, detect the photons, it's up the system. We have basically entangled the two atoms at that point. But that's only the first half of the process, right? Then you have to go ahead and interrogate the ions to produce your random numbers. So once, once they're entangled, um, we, we 
still have to keep our distance from the atoms. So, so the atoms are in a vacuum chamber, number one. There's no air around to disturb the system. Um, and, and the electrodes that hold the atom in place, like a, like a magnetically levitated train, these are just individual atoms held with fields, those electrodes have to be pretty far away too. Um, now once we have these two coins that are correlated, we then need to observe them. And this is the inherent randomness of quantum mechanics at work. When you observe such a system, it randomly gives you a zero or a one. Uh, now, the special thing about this random source is that we don't, don't just have one atom, we have its entangled pair. And by occasionally checking on the entangled pair to make sure that there's a correlation, uh, we can be sure that this quantum randomness gives you numbers that are private, that nobody else, it's impossible for anybody else to have a copy. This concept of entanglement is a little bit difficult to understand. It exists only in the quantum world and nowhere else. Let's see if we can't uh, make that comprehensible. Yeah, so entanglement is probably the weirdest aspect of quantum mechanics. And the idea of entanglement, well, it was there in the beginning of quantum theory, but it really got uh, attention from a paper that Einstein and company wrote in 1935, in which he pointed out some weird aspects of quantum mechanics. And the point of his paper was that quantum mechanics probably wasn't quite right because these things really bothered him. As I understand it, the, the idea there was in, in this EPR paper that let's say that you had a physical process that created a pair of, say, photons moving off in different directions. We know that the photons are correlated in some way. And quantum mechanics says that they are co correlated in a particular way. How, how is that exactly? Yeah, so if correlations are very important in quantum mechanics, but they're also common in regular real world. So imagine I had a box and I told you it either had two red balls or two blue balls. Now I take one of the balls without looking and go off to Wyoming and you keep the other ball if I open my box that I took with me to Wyoming and it was a red ball, you know your ball is red as well. They're correlated. That's not that surprising. That's a classical effect. And so I could generate that same thing with two quantum particles, maybe two photons and their polarization. But what was weird about quantum mechanics was you can come up with a situation when you measure whether my photon is got its polarization pointing up or pointing sideways, horizontal or vertical, I can set up a situation where I put a filter that's halfway in between and then that probability part of quantum mechanics comes in and I'm either going to get it up or horizontal passing through the filter. So either I'm going to get a photon coming out of the filter or I won't, but it's probabilistic. But in quantum mechanics, there are never any red balls, right? I mean, aren't, aren't all quantum objects, until they're observed, in a superposition of various states, so you would have a ball that was red and blue simultaneously, yes? And, and an entangled state would be a pair of balls that are either both red or both blue. And, of course, you couldn't know until you measured them. Then to be absolutely certain that they were entangled as opposed to just accidentally correlated, you would perform one of these bell tests that you talked about before, not with red or blue balls, obviously, but I think the way Bell did it was with photon. What he showed is there's a particular arrangement of filters 
you have a filter and I have a filter. And if I arrange them so that they're not <clears throat> the same, so maybe my filter is at plus 30 degrees and yours is at minus 30 degrees, the answers you get using quantum mechanics are different than any classical theory you can come up with that has what we would call an objective reality. Objects become entangled for a variety of reasons. That's right. right. You can intentionally entangle things. So what Chris is talking about is he goes out and intentionally entangles things by mixing photons emitted by his ions on beam splitters. But quite often things come entangled just by the process. So the very first measurements that showed that Einstein was wrong was looking at a atom that decayed and emitted two photons at once, and they came out entangled. Einstein's uh, core objection, as I understand it, was that if you let these particles travel, uh, in this case, in the case of photons, at the speed of light, and you waited quite a while, they would be a very long distance apart. Then if you measured one, you would know, according to quantum mechanics, what the corresponding value of the other one was, even though they were so far apart that even light couldn't have traveled between them. That's right. He called this spooky action at a distance. But what, what would be a, a flaw from Einstein's perspective turns out to be uh, one of the most interestingly exploitable aspects of quantum behavior, yes? Yes, absolutely. And that's what we're going to hear about from Chris in terms of how you can make random numbers. Well, let's just ask him. So, Chris, how exactly does the random number stuff come in here? Well, after the two, after the two atoms are entangled, uh, there are definite correlations between each of them, yet each of them considered individually are, as far as we can tell, perfectly random. It's sort of like we have two, two coins uh, that are flipped but we always see that they give the same value, both heads or both tails. If you don't know the existence of the other coin, your individual coin is random. But because it's correlated, there's sort of like a, a hidden link between the two. How long did it take you to, to uh, actually take the data here? <laughs> That's the bad news, I guess. The, <laughs> the first part of the experiment, just making the entanglement, uh, takes on average several minutes just to get two atoms entangled. And to do this experiment, we needed to prepare several thousand successive entanglement events. We just got the machine running and observed about 3,000. So 3,000 times several minutes is about three or four weeks, 24-7 <laughs> around the clock. So yeah, it's very slow. So, so what makes it so hard to generate those entangled pairs? Oh, well, uh, it, it's actually simple. The, these photons that come off the atoms, we need to catch both of them, one from each atom, and they need to interfere. And it turns out the hardest part is just catching the photon. For quantum mechanics to work, you have to leave it alone. You have to have isolation. And uh, it's difficult to, to take a single atom and put something next to it and still have it behave quantum mechanically. So, unfortunately, we can't collect these photons very efficiently. If we, if we put a lens right up, if we put some kind of fiber optic right up next to the atom, it would disturb the atom. So we have to keep our distance, and this is one practical reason why, why the experiment almost never works. It's, <laughs> the probability is so low. So most of the photons emitted from the ion just miss right. getting collected by right. that uh, initial thing. Most of the attempts to entangle these two atoms, the photons hit the wall or something. They don't 
get into our optical system. So um, we have to get lucky twice in a sense, so the probability is very low. It turns out to be about one part in 100 million. <laughs> and when you say it's the output is a zero or a one, obviously the, the system does not generate zeros and ones. What is the, uh, the physical event that makes a zero or a one? Right. Uh, e each atom uh, has two energy levels that we, we call a qubit, a quantum bit. We call it zero or one, but you're right. These are two uh, different states of magnetism of the atom, actually. The atom, the atom behaves sort of like a tiny bar magnet with north up or south up. Quantum mechanics says that it, you can only have those two possibilities. It can't be north sideways like a real bar magnet. And so we basically measure the direction of that bar magnet. And we do that with another laser beam. And uh, our atom is very well suited for that because when we shine this laser beam on the atom, if it's north up, it's very bright. We see a bright dot where the atom is on a, on a camera. If the atom is south up, then the, the atom's dark. So basically, it's sort of like a 1950s computer. It's bright or a dark light that tells us very clearly we identify that with one or zero. But there's another aspect to this experiment, right? That is to say, you not only certify that your numbers are random, but you certify that they are private. That is to say, the specific sequence that you got could not have been generated by any other means in any other place. And you know that's the case because it's even independent of the device that it ran on. It is device independent. And people that, people that listen, have, have, have bothered to listen to this will probably know that quantum systems are the best random number generators, but this right. is beyond that. This, this doesn't assume anything about your device. It doesn't matter what you have as long as you have these correlations and you believe quantum mechanics. It doesn't matter if, if somebody put a little microchip in there and tried to steal your numbers. If they tried to steal your numbers, you wouldn't see these correlations anymore. But the fact that you have the pair with it allows you to do something. That's the new thing. It allows you to check that nobody could possibly share a copy of what you have. I, I would claim that if somebody gives you a Geiger counter and says, this is random, you should not trust them. You don't have right. to trust them. If they do certify it, how do you know they're not lying? With our system, if we certify it, as long as you know that you can look at these pairs and show that there's this correlation, you don't need any certification. It is certified by just that observation. Right. This is fundamental research, but if you wanted to build a, a working gizmo uh, out of something like this, how, how might one go about it? Well, I think you need to make it uh, work a little faster. <laughs> Generating one bit every 10 minutes is not going to cut it. Um, there, there are, there are, there, there's a lot of hope on the way, though, and that is primarily in just collecting light from these atoms more efficiently. I, I think in the future, this could be quite fast, this could approach kilohertz type rates, which is not interesting for live internet, but it's very interesting for, uh, for encoding a, a key or something where you only need to do that every day or every hour. So having a bit rate of a kilohertz, while it sounds painfully slow, it's still useful if the cryptography is really, really good. So Steve, what's the bottom line here? In 1926, Albert Einstein wrote a letter to Max Born, one of the other pioneers of quantum mechanics. And in that letter, he said, quantum mechanics is certainly imposing, but an inner voice tells me that it is not yet the real thing. The theory says a lot, but does not really bring us any closer to the secret of the old one. I, at any rate, am convinced that he does not throw dice. Of course, Einstein was referring to God does not throw dice. That's the paraphrase of this quote. And what we've learned in the following 90 years is, in fact, quantum mechanics does seem to be the real thing. 
And nature does throw dice, and quantum mechanics makes the best dice. And that's all from JQI headquarters. If you'd like to learn more about the fast-moving world of quantum information science, take a look at our website at jqi.umd.edu. There's a lot of multimedia stuff and news there uh, to keep you up to date on what's going on. And while you're there, you might take a look at the Physics Frontier Center, supported by the National Science Foundation. The address for that site is pfc.umd.edu. So for Steve, Carl, and the rest of the JQI fellows, thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. <laughs>